Yeah, love stories meaning experiences, um, um, maybe certain influences like media or movies we've seen when we were growing up. Is that what you're referring to? Like kind of the story that we tell our heads of what we look for in a partner and what we want? Well, the 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 theory, as it's been posed, is that there are about two dozen stories that are common, and this is based on research. Uh, I didn't just make them up. So we talked about a business story. Uh, a guy or a gal who has business stories are looking for a business partner. They're looking for the money. Uh, am I going to get a nice house? Am I going to get nice jewelry or nice car or whatever they're looking for? Uh, but in contrast, someone who has a, a fairy tale story uh, is looking for a prince or a princess. They're looking for a really profound romance. guys well welcome to the show really excited to have you guys on here uh to talk about love and obviously you guys have written a book called the new psychology of love um together and yeah it's 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 good timing actually i mean i one of the authors that i um that you guys talked about was david buss um and he also was brought up in an audiobook that i'm listening to right now called moral animals and kind of talks about like the evolution of love over history, um, maybe as like a high level question. I mean, how has the concept of relationships and love, you know, at a high level evolved since like the Victorian age or even from the history of humans to the modern times of what we're seeing today with, you know, all these dating apps and so forth? How would you kind of summarize the evolution of the changes we've seen? Well, I think that statements about how lovers evolved from the time of early hominids to the present are, <clears throat> shall we say, constructions. <laughs> we don't really know what it was like. And because yeah. there are no fossils, it's not like with archaeology where you have fossils. Uh, it's pretty speculative. But in terms of the second part of the question, since Victorian times, uh, things have changed a lot. Um, in Victorian times, love and marriage were almost dissociated. Uh, marriage was largely a utilitarian deal. It, mm. In terms of our theory, it was a business story. So we have a theory that underlying different <clears throat> love relationships, their stories. And today the business story that love and marriage are kind of business prospects seems a little um, harsh. But in those times, that's the way it was. I mean, everyone was happy with that. That's, that was the expectation. Um, it was a deal. And the result was that if someone was looking for love, they might look elsewhere. Uh, at least a guy. If a woman mm. did, then, uh, you know, she would be viewed as perhaps having loose morals. And if a guy did it, he was seen as, well, you know, this is normal urges for a male. So it was 
what we would today call very male chauvinist. Um, but so on the one hand, the love and marriage were viewed as more separated, but at the same time, uh, there were many more prohibitions on what's allowed and what's not allowed. So it led to a love having more of a sense of being repressed. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't talk about it too much. There's certain things you don't do, or if you do them, you keep it a secret. And so when Freud came up with his theories, which were so influential in the history of psychology and psychiatry, um, the idea that you could build a theory of essentially a social and emotional development on the idea of repression sounded pretty reasonable because that's the way things were in the Victorian times. Um, today, it doesn't seem as possible because we don't need to repress as much. So today, I think things are more, they're more in the open uh, with the constraint that there are still things uh, people are reluctant to talk about, especially in some states, uh, maybe even your own, uh, where there are more prohibitions than in other states or in other communities. And I think right. it's also, you know, nowadays it's a lot more about self-expression and people are actively searching for happiness. In earlier times, it was more like, as he said, kind of like a business deal. And you had to bring in the money. You had to raise the family. There were a lot more constraints and society expected more of couples. And these days, people are more trying to, you know, find themselves and express themselves also within their relationship. And that really makes a difference. And as you said, we've got all the dating apps now. Plus with COVID, it's really hard if you don't have a partner, it's hard mm -hmm. to find someone. So those dating apps, you know, they're um, really becoming more and more popular. Plus when you're a couple, I think couples have had a hard time over the past two years too, because often they've just sat on top of each other. You couldn't go anywhere. Some people like being together, other we like being together all the time. But there's a lot of people who really need their space. They sometimes need to be alone. And that is totally fine too. Everybody's different. But then of course you've got problems too, because if you can't go out, if there's no place to go, that's hard too. So there are just new challenges these days. Yeah. One of the biggest ones is that sometimes you think you know someone through an app or through social media and then you meet them and it's like, who's this? <laughs> what? That's right. <laughs> yes. Very many personal experiences with that. Um, but to go back around the idea of making marriage and love, those kind of two, those two things um, being separated because marriage was more like a business. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Was that just more that, uh, uh, you know, it was meant for reproduction? Was it meant so that, um you know, was it like society making it more that concept of, you know, repression? Like, can, can you elaborate a little bit more on why it's such a, was more of a business in that time, in, the, in those times? Yeah, there's sociocultural norms that we all adhere to that we don't look at them as norms, but rather as that's the way things are. So at that time, uh, I don't think most people would have said, well, you know, I had the misfortune or the fortune to be born in Victorian times when uh, love is more of a business or at least marriages. 
rather that was just seen marriage's purpose was you know you're gonna have have kids and raise the kids and in order to make sure you stay together it's better to be married uh, in order for the child to be legitimate you have to be married um so it acquired the feeling of there are these business obligations you have those obligations haven't gone away they're just less closely linked to ideas about love and in earlier times women often weren't able to you know have uh, their own job or have a profession so it's really things kind of like fit together you needed a man who brought in the money, you needed a woman who brought up the children, who ran the household. And there wasn't really much choice in terms of what you would do. Plus, in earlier times, people also often married within their own um, socioeconomic strata. Mm -hmm. So you married sometimes, you know, think about the kings and whatever, the royal families, they married to, to... keep their own power or to extend their power. And that, of course, was the same within families who ran businesses or whatever. Yeah. Although we forget that to a large extent, we still do the same thing yes. today. That's what I was going to say, uh, yeah. We, yeah. Uh, it's not as formalized, but the people we meet, we tend to meet at work or yeah. activities we do. or um, Friends of friends, yeah. Close. And as our society becomes more and more polarized and more and more stratified, uh, we more tend to meet people like our, very much like ourselves. What what do you think is the biggest change that happened in modern times that now kind of puts us in a different situation? Is it that the now at least, uh, you know, women have more independence of not needing to rely on uh, their male counterparts to support a family and they can, and obviously like advancement of technologies, like what would you say are some of the major factors beyond, you know, the, the equality of, of genders? Uh, well, I think one of them is uh, equality of gender. Another is that economically women have more resources. Uh, another is that they can vote. So uh, if some politician uh, comes across as favoring males very strongly that women have the power or you know sometimes it's seeming sexist women have the power to oust them whereas before men might be less likely to oust them Um, but I think that the there is another issue and that is the technological changes have given women more access to information that before they might not have had. Before they often were sort of stuck in the house with the kids, with the cleaning. Uh, If they were upper class, they might have had someone doing those things for them, but then they did approved womanly activities. Uh, They could be a librarian or a teacher or maybe a nurse. Uh, Today, they have many more possibilities for roles. And so they just have more information available and they realized how suppressed women were in past times. Right, right. And kind of going back to now modern dating of how kind of you we look at the history of, you know, the suppression and the inequality that women had versus males. And now, obviously, nothing is equal today. There's obviously still inequality, but it's certainly better than what we were before. 
But how does that now affect what women look for in a man versus what a man looks for in in a woman in modern times versus uh, you know perhaps in the older times? Is there like common elements? I would imagine. Like, has anything really changed in terms of what we look for in each other's partners or what men? I mean, also like you know, if men men looking for men or women looking for women, of course, as well. I mean, just talking about David Thus, you know, from evolutionary evolutionary psychology, we know that there are some things that women look for in men and vice versa. So, for example, men tend to look rather, you know, at women's looks. They look for someone who's young, which indicates fertility. Women look for someone who is powerful or who has money. So, you know, the husband can't. But they less need to do They that. less need it, to do that. that. was need. I mean, you know, some of the stuff that's viewed as evolutionary, I think, is more sociocultural than David Buss might think it is. Uh, if okay. women couldn't work and if women had no votes and if women had no resources, if all the resources went to the firstborn male, they had to look for men who had resources. So uh, the advantage for women now is they can actually look for love in a marriage, whereas before that might have been quite a bit harder to do. But beyond these, I think there are still some tendencies that are like gender differences. But beyond that, I think what's really changed is, and we've talked about love stories. And so those love stories are preconceptions or ideas of what a relationship should be like. And most people aren't conscious of their love stories. And so how, how do those love stories develop? As you grow up as a child, you observe your parents, your neighbors, relatives, friends, all those couples. You have your own relationships. You read books. You watch movies. And you develop an idea of what a relationship should ideally be like. And so nowadays, people can act more on these ideals, and sometimes these ideals and the love stories that they develop may not be functional. They may actually not serve them well, but people are still looking to fulfill their love stories. And so what they can do to a greater extent nowadays is they can try to fulfill their love stories and to live them out because they have more freedom to choose a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love stories meaning experiences, um, um, maybe certain influences like media or movies we've seen when we were growing up. Is that what you're referring to? Like kind of the story that we tell our heads of what we look for in a partner and what we want? Well, the, the, the theory, as it's been posed, is that there are about two dozen stories that are common. And this is based on research. Uh, I didn't just make them up. So we talked about a business story. Uh, a guy or a gal who has a business story is looking for a business partner. They're looking for the money. Uh, am I going to get a nice house? Am I going to get nice jewelry or nice car or whatever they're looking for? Uh, but in contrast, someone who has a, a fairy tale story uh, is looking for a prince or a princess. They're looking for a really profound romance. Someone who has a travel story is looking for someone they can sort of travel 
together with through time on the road of life and hope to stay on the same road. Someone who has a horror story is looking for someone either to abuse or to be abused by. So yeah. there are these different kinds of stories. Some of them are pro-social and some like the horror story or the police story where you're um, keeping careful tabs on your partner or you're the criminal who's being kept tabs on. Some of them aren't so pro-social. Right, right. Yeah, I, I saw, um, I don't know what it was, like an article or maybe a documentary where you talk about, uh, where they were talking about kind of the fairy tales and the stories that we were told, particularly if, when you're looking at Disney or like, let's say for particularly a lot of females growing up, they looked at Cinderella or, you know, even Shrek and kind of in, the, in, in younger females today or Beauty and the Beast, where a lot of it was like based around a male needing to rescue a female in whatever socioeconomic form or castles. And that's kind of the, the, the message that a lot of younger females have gotten for a while growing up. Does that, I would imagine stuff like that really affects how, this, you know, what kind of stories they tell themselves when they're not looking for a partner. And I imagine the same goes for a male where perhaps they were watching other Disney stories as well growing up. Yeah. And uh, what we've found in our research is that all stories uh, have both advantages and disadvantages. I mean, an odd finding from our research is that there is no story that in and of itself predicts success in a relationship. Some predict failure, like a horror huh. story tends to fail. Uh, a police story tends to fail. A science fiction story where you're just looking for someone weird tends to fail. <laughs> but there is no story in particular that predicts success. And I think the reason for that is they're all fraught. Relationships inevitably change over time. And it's really hard to keep the prince princess thing going forever. Um, maybe a few people do. Uh, but there's a reason that most fairy tale stories end with, and then they lived happily ever after because they don't really want to talk about what happened afterward. So every story, uh, because relationships inevitably change, they have challenges. A, a travel story where people go together through time, people change over time. You know, like if you think about yourself, you're probably not really quite the same person you were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you'll be a different person in 10 years. And so sometimes people feel kind of gypped. Well, I married this guy and now I got this guy. I mean, who's this guy? You know, mm -hmm. he's gained 20 pounds and uh, he's become rough and uh, he's never home. And all he does is sit down and watch football games. So a lot of the challenge is that the story you have doesn't always evolve the way you want it to. And that is something that people often don't understand. So they, as the relationship continues, they think their relationship has to stay as is, when in fact, it's perfectly normal for partners to evolve and for also the relationship to evolve. And then you try to make the best of it. Maybe you have to start coming closer together again or find a common path, but that is normal. And then people think something's wrong with them or something is wrong with their relationship when it really isn't. It's something that is to be expected, but people often don't know that. So when someone is going out 
and they want to find that one person. We can talk about whether that even exists, but let's say someone is trying to find that special someone. What are like the biggest mistakes that people should, that people make today that they should avoid when they're trying to find this special person? I guess one is like holding on to this story of whatever thing that you have in your head of what this person should be and how it should last. Um, What are some of the other ones that you guys have recognized? Well, first of all, I think it's that it's a, it's a common mistake to think that variables like values, beliefs, age, culture, religion are as important, you know, as people think they are, they play some role. And that's also why matching company, you know, ask about all these variables and factors. But there are other things that play much more of a role. And so when you look at the love stories, you more have to think about what is the deeper meaning of a relationship for you? So yes, you may be from a different culture or from a different religion, but does that really matter to you? If it does, it's very important. But if it doesn't, then it's actually a more superficial attribute. And so if you look at your love stories, and the problem again is that they're usually unconscious in what you truly want from a relationship where you want that relationship to go, but also how you want to interact in that relationship then you can get a much better grasp of what you want in a partner. Because those love stories, they don't only affect what you want in a relationship. They affect everything. They affect how you behave in a relationship, how you interpret your partner's behavior. When, you know, your partner says, oh, you, you know, you always keep the toothpaste open after you brush your teeth. How do you react to that? Those little things, is that a criticism? Is that just a comment? Well, you know, I'd really appreciate you're always, you know, doing this differently. So it's really how you interpret things depends on what you have in your head and the preconceptions that you have and your expectations. So all those things, how you behave, how you interpret someone else's actions, they're all dependent on your story. And that really makes a difference. One of the things we found in our research uh, is that if you ask, if you have people fill out a love questionnaire and you fill it out both for the person they're with or they're interested in and for the ideal partner, a better predictor than how you feel about the person or how they feel about you is the difference between how you feel about them and what you'd ideally like to feel about them and the difference between what you'd ideally like them to feel about you and what you perceive them to feel about you. So what Mm -hmm. I'm saying is that people have different ideals. And sometimes they think, I should love this person. I mean, you know, check, we have the same interests. Check, uh, we're in the same field. Check, we're in the same religion. Check, we both want kids. So everything seems right. You know, if you did one of these questionnaires for a dating agency, it would all match up. But the problem is that your ideal of that sort of fantasy person you want, if it's too far from the person you're with, all those checks don't count for much. Right, right. And is that why, I guess, over time, 
we think we're getting in a relationship with someone, which we think it might match that ideal person. But as we find out more about that person, or as we drift apart, that gap becomes too high, where eventually that's why people fall out of relationships. Um, that makes sense. I guess to counteract that, like, what are questions we should ask ourselves about the relationship that we're in or the person that we're with to know if we are dating the right person or whether this is the right person for us? I think the first one is to get a better sense of what you feel you really need. So for example, if you have high dependency needs, you really need the person to be around and to be able to count on their being around and to meet your needs. But everything else seems to work. If you have really strong dependency needs, all those other things that work aren't going to matter because you're going to feel like they're not there for you. And so you've got this person who could have been perfect for you, but it isn't because they're not meeting your needs. So I think the most important thing is, you know, sort of almost non-negotiables. And they're not, are they the same religion? Uh, Are they in the same profession? Uh, They want to have kids or not. It's more, you know, like um, I need, um, I might, (laughs) I might have need to be independent or autonomous. I really need someone who's not going to be clingy. And even if we share all these interests, if they're clingy, I just begin to feel claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to work. Or I have high dependency needs. Or I need someone, I have sort of, you know, these hobbies that are really important to me. And if they feel like they don't like my hobbies, I don't mean to do them. They think, uh, you know, there's something wrong with someone who spends all their time playing football or playing the violin or um, collecting coins or whatever it is, if they, if that person can't live with your hobbies or your friends or your family, those things begin to grate and they know, and they don't go away. So mm. I think asking yourself, what are the non-negotiable things I really need to feel comfortable with someone and to feel like I can stay with them are more important than the checkoffs. Like, do we have the same interests and do we have the same hobbies? Because those things, you actually, if you don't have the same interests, you can always find someone else who does. But if they yeah. don't meet your absolute needs, your relationship is screwed. Yeah. No, go ahead. And um, I also think it's important to think about events in your past that somehow stick out to you, be it when you, was a ch- when you were a child and something happened with your parents or your family or anything that happened with your partner that you have now or previous partners and think about not only the event, but really what was the meaning of the event? What was the meaning? Was there something where you felt, yes, I was truly needed and I was so glad to help. Am I someone who really wants to help and to give? Or was that an event where I really felt like, oh, I'm being left alone. My life is really characterized by that fear of being left alone. So try to get to the meaning of the significant events that you can remember. And it's really not the events per se. 
because otherwise everybody would be conscious of their concepts and ideals they have for their relationships, but people usually are not. You really have to dig down and get to the meaning. There's one other uh, from our research, and that is one of the best predictors of success is match in three components of love, intimacy, which is like friendship, communication, respect, caring, closeness, like a good friend, passion, which is how excited you are, like how wow you are in commitment, which is, yeah, I'm really with this. And what we've found in our work is that it, we have a triangular love scale. It's actually on our website, lovemultiverse.com. If you take this triangular love scale, if you mismatch, if you're asymmetrical, in terms of intimacy, passion, and commitment, it's really hard to make a relationship work. Like if one person really needs commitment, I need you to say you're gonna stay with me. I've been in too many relationships that I stayed with for two years and then they ended and I'm not getting any younger. And you don't wanna commit, it doesn't matter. Everything else doesn't matter. It's just not gonna work. Or if for you, you know, I've been in too many relationships which were really hot, but I couldn't even talk to the person. I really need intimacy. I really need this time to communicate, to trust, to care. Uh, I'm sort of sick of all the, uh, you know, the, the great sex, but I can't even talk to the person. So if you really need intimacy and the other person can't give it to you, nothing else is going to make it work. So I guess my point is that you need to, you can either take our questionnaire on the lovemultiverse.com website or just discuss to what extent are intimacy, passion, and commitment important to you? And if you mismatch, if it turns out that for one person, I just have to have that commitment or I'm not gonna waste another two years of my life on this, or I, I really need to feel like we're friends, or if this relationship doesn't excite me, I'm, I know I'm not gonna stay in it. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm gonna get bored and I'm gonna be out. So, it, you know, matching on those three things is really important. And the important thing is not exactly how much you have, it's whether you both want the same amount. You, see, you said intimacy, commitment, and what was the third one? Passion. Passion. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I, this, yeah go ahead. Yeah, th- this really reminds me of this kind of miscommunication I had. Um, and I didn't really find a good way to communicate it. Maybe I'm just not very, I wasn't very good at communicating this kind of these things in relationships, but one framework that's helped was like the, this love, the five love languages and talking about kind of how other people perceive love and how, how, you know, whether someone cares about you or not, uh, even like this you know, an ex-girlfriend that I had where we would fight and my acts of love is through service. And that's how I um, think that other people will perceive love for me. But I, I've heard that you also naturally think that's what other people want as well. So because I, I receive love through service, I think giving service. So I would do the dishes basically whenever we would get in a fight, but she wanted, you know, physical touch and quality time. So I was doing the complete opposite. And whenever we would get in a fight and um, that framework really helped just asking that person right up front, even friends to know like what, what they need in terms of how they actually, because it's like one thing to think that you're giving intimacy and love, but if that's not the way they receive it, uh, it's probably not the right way. Um, are there any other frameworks that you guys have found that helps with be 
being able to communicate that a little bit easier? Yeah, there was one other thing I wanted to um, mention as well, which fits in here is in our research, we also found that people actually don't really know how their partner feels about them. So we did some research and asked people how did they feel about their partner and how did they think their partner felt about them? And they did not really know what their partner felt about them. And those were couples in stable relationships. So you Mm -hmm. may think, you know, what your partner feels about you, but you do not really know. And what really matters more to people's relationship satisfaction is not how their partner actually feels, but how they think their partner feels. Because we can't ever really know how someone feels and what they think. So really, if your partner feels a lot of love for you, but you don't feel it, you have gained nothing. So it's really a lot more about your perceptions and how you perceive your partner to feel for you than it is about the partner's actual feelings. Huh. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and I, I, I can totally relate to that as well. I guess you're saying that's, that's a big barrier for people when they're communicating intimacy and so forth. Interesting. Um, we we kind of talked about like, you know, communicating these things and boredom. And I think this is kind of the common problem with modern love and modern relationships is that there's so many options and the consequences are certainly less dire than the Victorian age that we talked about. At what point do you know and how much commitment and how much investment to try to fix something if things aren't going right do you recommend people to commit to before they say, you know what, I've tried all I could. I don't think this is right. Because I think the problem today is like people give up too early, right? People don't even give an effort because of the options that they have and because of the less, you know, the less dire consequences. So what is that fine line? Because obviously people can commit too much and waste five years of their time when they could have invested into someone else. Yeah, I sometimes think it helps to create a model of what is it you want. I mean, you know, like one, two, three, four, five, here are things I need. Can you provide them? And uh, so it's almost like, it's almost like a list. Uh, You know, there are a lot of things, but that would be nice. But here are the things I really need to make this work. And that's what you got to think about. And just, uh, and if the other person doesn't like your model, then you ask them, what's their model? And if you can't make the two correspond too much, then you could say, well, you know, we really tried to make it work, but at least we know where we have mismatches. But I worry about people who don't want to come up with that, you know, who because if they're not willing to analyze what they need to make it work, you can keep having the same argument again and again in different forms. It's because you never figure out what it is you're arguing about. You seem to be arguing about one thing, but it's really another. So sometimes if you have this model, this kind of list of non-negotiables, and you can't get the list, they'll never match completely. But if you can't get them to match pretty well, then then you maybe you're just with the wrong person. And they're not the, as I said, they're not the things you would find from a matching service. You know, like you talked about, I need time. 
Yeah. Uh, I really need you to be here or I need touch or I need you to, you know, I need you to tell me what you're thinking. I mean, you know, you always seem to be secretive or non-communicative and I, I really have to know what's going on in your head. Uh, those aren't the things you find on the traditional list. Uh, or I need you to stop flirting with other people. I know for you, it's just for fun, but it really bothers me. And I just can't deal with it. So you sort of come up with a list of these are the things I need to make it work. And if you can't agree to those, then it's probably not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess some of, some of that is, even though it's, it may not be in your natural nature. So let's say like for physical touch, for me, it's not like a thing that comes into naturally just growing up, but if it's important to the other partner, it's a matter of whether you can get there. Right. It's a matter of, of like, even though it's not naturally something that I would think about, if it's important for my partner, that's something that I just need to naturally love. And if I can't do that, then we're probably not a good match. So it's not just whether you're doing that now, but it's more like, can you actually adapt and get there to, to show the intimacy? And that's the advantage of having this kind of model, this list of things, because you, you each can ask themselves, is that something I possibly can provide? Uh, and provide it in a way that it doesn't feel fake. Like mm. if someone is not into touch, they can kind of, you know, there's this song. I was just listening to it in the car coming home. It was on Sirius Radio. You've lost that loving feeling. The Righteous Brothers. You right. can tell what stations I listen to, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's like if you feel like whatever it is you mean by love, that they've lost that loving feeling. And they can't do what you need to feel like they have that loving feeling. That's really, it's really hard to make that relationship work. Mm. Yeah. I also think it's very important to emphasize that I really believe that every person has the potential to create loving and fulfilling relationships. And there are people whose parents might have gotten divorced and they've never had any good models. And so far their relationships have failed or, you know, it's like there's a lot of people who feel like, well, I just can't do it. I always fail. And I think that is a misconception. I really believe that everybody can create fulfilling relationships, but it really needs that going deeper that analyzing, what do I want? What are those love stories that I have? What am I aiming for? What drives my behavior? And once you understand that, you find better and more accurate words to talk with your partner. You can suddenly feel more seen. You can communicate more openly and help your partner understand you. But as we said before, these things are often unconscious. So it doesn't come easily. Yeah. So you're saying really the first step isn't to think about what this person needs to do for me. It's really getting clear on what are the things that I need in order to feel loved, in order, in order to have a growing partnership with someone and then communicate that in the most clear way possible. If that person can do it, stay in the relationship and try to make it work. If not, that's the kind of the signal you, you get to say, okay, I think there's someone else that I might be better fit for me. And understand what your partner needs. 
because yes. in a way, so to come back to those love stories, they work, a relationship works when you have love stories that are somewhat compatible. You'll never have exactly the same love story, but you have to have something, some conceptions of love that kind of like drive you in the same direction where you want to go along the same path or you have a common goal. Mm. And you have to figure out if your partner wants the same things. Or if you keep having the same arguments again and again, also helps to go back to those preconceptions and wonder, well, why do we have these arguments? There might well be a misunderstanding. Possibly both partners mean well as is often yeah. the case, and yet you end up having the same argument over and over again, although nobody really wanted to, you know, upset the other. And that is also where you really have to start analyzing what is really going on under the surface. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned passion for one of the, uh, uh, one of the components in the, in, the, in the triangle, but to me, that seems to be something that and, and I think like this is kind of the issues of modern relationships. Like to me, that's something like intimacy and commitment. I think that's something that you can try to foster, but passion, like that same passion that you had when you initially met in that first initial months or even a year to 10 years or five years into the relationship. I mean, how does a couple sustain that level of passion is it or is that really important is that how you guys are defining passion or is there a different way i think it transforms um you may not have passion of the kind you had before but you can still be excited about the person not necessarily in the same oh my god you know the bet you're hearing the bells and the whistles but this is a really special person uh this mm-hmm. is someone who's unique this is someone who has provided me with love and care that I don't think I could get from anybody else. So passion isn't just sex. It's also excitement about the person as a person. And that I do think you can preserve. How, how do you do that? I, I'm curious because I, I've heard this from Esther Perel, uh, who's I'm, I'm a big fan of. And one of her quotes is that most people are going to have two to three marriages or committed relationships in their adult life. Some of, all, some of us will have them with the same person, meaning that you find different ways to find the same person that you're with and fall in love with them over and over again. And one of the things that she surveyed of people of, why, of how they've been able to do that were a couple of things were when, they're, when you see that person that you're with in their own element, maybe they're you know, a, a professor and you see them from the outside really being in flow and doing what they're talented in. Uh, maybe it's an athlete. Maybe it's you know someone that's building their business that you're attracted to. It could be like someone else's words that you hear from, to, you know, whether it's praise or whatnot, where, when you've also been away from them for a long time. Um, I guess like when you guys have done the research of trying to encourage people to fall in love with the same person over and over again, what are some of the things that you found that have worked for people? It's that you find uh, something new that you didn't know was there before. I think that's the common element. Wow, I didn't know you could start a business. Or, wow, I didn't know that you could be that kind of fantastic parent. Or, 
wow, I didn't mm. know that you could plan a trip like none we've ever taken. Uh, to keep a relationship passionate the way we're talking about, it, you have to grow. And you have to find ways of growing that are exciting both to you and to your partner. And if you can do that, if you can uh, keep finding new pieces of yourself and of your partner that are exciting, then it's not the same kind of passion, but it's still passionate. Look, you know, with kids, most people stay passionate about their kids even as they grow up, even when they become tweens. I get our kids. I mean, because they're constantly changing. And, you know, it's like you keep seeing new things in it. Like, this is the guy who I, you know, I saw when he was born, or this is the girl who I took walks with in a stroller. Uh, so it works with kids. It can work with adults too, that you keep changing and transforming yourself. And he mentioned the excitement and there've been some studies that also showed that as you get physically aroused, that, that you can also, in a way, sometimes people misattribute where that arousal comes from. They had these studies where people like met someone else on a hanging bridge over a gorge. And so when they met someone in the middle of that bridge with the abyss below them, they thought the person they met was more attractive than if they'd met them, you know, on like a street or whatever. Oh, interesting. So people also misattribute their physical arousal. For, what is the reason for that arousal? They thought, oh, you know, like I'm physically aroused. They're nervous because they're in that gorge, but they thought, oh, you know, that must mean I find that person more attractive. So one thing you can also do is find exciting things to do with your partner, some thrilling things that would also help. And mm. another thing that I think also would help for the passion aspect is to either think back or to think anew about what you really treasure about your partner. Why have you chosen that person? What is it you like about them? Because in everyday life, you tend to forget, you know, there's so much to do. You need to go to work. You need to go shopping. You might have to take care of the kids. There's so much. You don't think about these things anymore. But think back or reevaluate the partner because they have changed. What is it? that makes them so special to you? Why did you get together in the first place? Yeah, yeah. And then just kind of final touches on on that in terms of how, I guess, the, I don't think it's necessarily modern. I, I'm assuming this is from an evolutionary perspective have been done for a while, but polygamy is one thing that is becoming more common with open relationships and so forth. What, what are your guys' thoughts on like how rooted that is in terms of our human nature and biology and whether you think that could actually work in kind of the social contracts that we've built in our society. Depends on the couple. Um, if you're okay with it, I think it can work, uh, but you may not stay okay with it uh, because there. It's, it's like anything else, it's, 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 stories can always go wrong. So you may have thought you wouldn't be jealous, but you are. Or you may have thought that you and your partner would be equally good at finding other relationships, but you're not. Uh, or you may have thought that by 
having someone else in open relationship is that, well, they, I'll never love another person that it's just for sex or just for fun, but that doesn't work either. Then you start hmm. loving. So the, um, you know, I think it's always fine to try things, but also to realize that if you put that into some kind of contract, you don't know how you're going to react to it usually. It's like most things in life. And so you need an escape clause. Can we love two people at the same time equally? Yeah, because you can have different stories for different mm. people. So you don't only have one story, you have a hierarchy of story. So it's hard to love two people by the same story. But wow. if you love one, say, through a travel story and one through an art story and one through a history story and another, that can work. But if it's the same story, then they come more into conflict. And that's also where you might get into trouble because you're with one partner and you're living one story. But then you meet someone else who represents a story that is higher in your hierarchy. So although you might even have been happy in your relationship, now that you've met that other person that represents that story of yours, that's higher in the hierarchy and that's more important to you, suddenly things may fall apart in your present relationship. And you may think, well, I really do want to have a relationship with that other person. And so the first relationship begins to decline. So, so when you do the open relationship thing, you don't even know what the risks are. Yeah. You make a list of them, but you don't know. Yeah. There's so many variables that come into factor, right? I mean, I guess the, yeah. People underestimate situational variables. You know, they always think it's about them. You know, what's going on right, right now, there's an invasion of Ukraine. So that's affecting people. And ways that a day ago, they might never have imagined they'd be affected. Situational variables are really important. And we and sometimes it's just good luck or bad luck. You know, where what country you live in, what community you live in. And we have no control over this a lot of the time. Yeah, a lot of it is just a leap of faith. And you just got to do what you can and yeah. do it every day. And and Hopefully that's it works why, out. you know, something like you wouldn't think finance, finances will never tear us apart, but they sometimes do. Or having kids who have emotional problems. You know, those are just things you don't anticipate, but you can't, it's, it's like no one knows if there's a Holocaust, who's going to save the victims. Uh, you know, it's interesting. No one knows who's going to sell out to a hostile government until they're actually there. You know about the Milgram experiment where people- uh, Prison prison experiment? No, that's the Zimbardo thing. The Zimbardo experiment. Uh, they had teachers and learners and the teachers shocked the learners. And two thirds of the so-called teachers- It was electric shocks. Yeah, shocked right. them to the highest level, which wow. seemed like they were killing them. Now, if you ask people, would you have shocked someone to the highest level? Almost no one would say they would, but two-thirds did. You don't right. know how you're going to react. Right, so right. That's, that's the trick in all this. There's this joker of the situation, and you don't know how you'd react when you're in it. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting way to put that. Um, 
Well, I really, really appreciate this conversation, guys. I, I had a great time and even learned kind of a lot about the love stories and how, what are some of the best ways to carry on relationships and communicate that with your partners. Um, but would love to, you know, learn a little bit more about how people can find you online. Um, where are the best places for people to learn more about, uh, about you guys? So we have a website, www.lovemultiverse.com. And you're always welcome to stop by and have a look at what we offer there. We have lots of blog posts and we have some free quizzes. We also have some paid assessments. So whatever you're interested in, I also would really like to invite our listeners to get in touch with us. We are really here to help people to improve their relationships. We really believe that everybody has got that potential. And so if there's anything you heard that really made a difference to you, we would love to know. Or if you have a question for us, or if there's anything you'd learn about more, please do get in touch. We have a contact link on our website, or you can just get in touch with me by email. It's Karen, K-A-R-I-N, at lovemultiverse.com. And we'd really love to hear from listeners and see you know, what's helpful or what they'd like to hear more of. Awesome, guys. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you guys again for tuning in to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.